Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's always notable when Israel and Lebanon strike a deal. The border arrangement they've come to about offshore gas highlights just how much of the stuff is in the Middle East. We ask why it's so hard to get more of it to market. And Yuri Karpatenko, a Ukrainian conductor, was murdered in Kherson, probably last month. Our obituaries editor reflects on a principled but difficult character whose life was brutally cut short after refusing to put on a show for Russian occupiers. But first... Liz Truss broke a record yesterday that had stood for nearly two centuries. Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. After a brisk and utterly chaotic 45 days in office, she became Britain's shortest-serving prime minister in history. That's a considerably shorter term than that of the previous record holder, who spent 119 days in the role before being ousted by a fatal bout of pneumonia in 1827. By yesterday, Miss Truss's downfall was inevitable. Her ill-advised economic program had battered the pound, the bond markets, Britain's reputation, and her own credibility. So here we are, again, awaiting a leadership contest inside the Tory party to decide who Britain's next leader will be. Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, called instead for a general election. We can't have another experiment at the top of the Tory party. There is an alternative, and that's a stable Labour government. And the public are entitled to have their say, and that's why there should be a general election. The government has lost its head. They must now find the wilt to go on. Indeed, to turn over a new leaf. So just over a week ago, we wrote that Liz Truss was in control of the political narrative, that she had political authority for about seven days. And that, we wrote, was the same as the shelf life of a lettuce. Andrew Palmer is our Britain editor. And then to its eternal credit, the Daily Star, a tabloid newspaper, set up a webcam of a photo of Liz Truss alongside a lettuce uh, to see which would last longer. And in the middle of this week on Wednesday, while the lettuce was gently wilting, Liz Truss told Parliament that she was going to stay in her job. Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. But just one day later, the lettuce won the contest and Miss Truss was out. And we've spoken on the show quite a bit about how uh, power seemed to slip away from her after the disastrous mini-budget. How did things actually come apart? 
Well, that was absolutely the context. I mean, that is fundamental to understanding why she left. She had to fire her first chancellor. Her second chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, was systematically undoing everything that she'd announced in that mini budget. So she was, as they say, in office, but not in power. It was absolutely humiliating. And there was a kind of question around what was the point of Liz Truss. But the proximate cause for her going unfolded late on Wednesday with a couple of events. One was the resignation or forced resignation of her Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. And the other was an incredibly chaotic scene in Parliament where the government had called a vote about fracking. There was confusion about whether it was a vote of confidence in the government. And there were these very, very chaotic scenes of MPs being jostled through the lobbies to vote with the government. And one Labour MP, Chris Bryant, reported manhandling of those uh, MPs. I saw members being physically manhandled into another lobby and being bullied. And that's a very visible manifestation of a loss of party discipline. Had lots of people in despair. One MP, Sir Charles Walker, had clearly had enough by that stage and said so in another viral clip. I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest to achieve ministerial position. And, I, and, I and it just became clear at that point that her policy agenda had been completely destroyed. Her control over the party had gone and there was just absolutely no way back. OK, so we're heading for our third prime minister in the calendar year. How does this play out? Yes. So the Conservative Parliamentary Party is uh, running this very accelerated leadership contest this time around. Last time it went on for, it seemed like, years, the entire summer. And this time it's going to be done within a week. Candidates can start gathering in nominations from MPs now. We will find out who is in the running on Monday afternoon at 2pm. And to be successful, a candidate has to have at least 100 MPs backing them. And because there are only 300 and 70-odd Tory MPs in Parliament. That means the maximum number of MPs in the field will be three. And it could be less than that. It could only be one. There'll be a private hustings among MPs after the close of nominations. If there are three MPs on the ballot, the MPs will then vote and whittle it down to two. And then there's going to be an indicative vote among the two, if that's what we get down to, to give a steer to Tory party members as to who the MPs want. And then the Tory party members themselves will have an online vote. So it is possible that, you know, we're waiting until the end of next week. But it's also possible if only one MP gets through or if an, an MP uh, drops out in the final round, that we won't have to go to the Tory party membership, that the MPs can sort it out for themselves. And so who are the runners and riders here? Who who do you think will, will rise to the top? Well, there are three names that have most chance of reaching that nominations threshold of, of 100 MPs. Rishi Sunak, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was Liz Truss's rival during the, the summer leadership contest, is absolutely in there. He very presciently warned that Ms Truss's 
package of unfunded tax cuts would blow up the economy. Uh, so he's now looking a, li- a bit like a seer. Um, he has a kind of I told you so platform there and a well-organized campaign. Then you have Penny Mordaunt, who came third among the MPs at the last contest, leader of the House of Commons in the Trust Cabinet, seen as a good Commons performer and um, sort of acceptable to all the many factions within the Tory party. And then circling in the background, Boris Johnson, who retains the loyalty of a large swathe of the parliamentary party. And if you look at who has already come out backing him, is running roughly neck and neck with Mr. Sunak. So those three names are the, the heavyweights, if you like, in the contest. So hang on a second. Boris Johnson, does, does no one remember he recently left office somewhat in disgrace? I think plenty of people remember that, but his uh, supporters would say that he was booted out for nothing. They would say that he had a mandate in 2019. He's the person who was running the party uh, when they won that big election majority. And uh, they would say that he is a proven election winner and the best chance of uh, getting the party back into some sort of shape for an election that is supposed to happen at the latest by January 2025. On the other hand, massively divisive figure, as you point out, turfed out of office very, very recently. Plenty of MPs already briefing that, you know, if he was to come back, they would quit the party. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a long shot, I would say, but absolutely possible. So there's some chance then of another divisive leader coming in, a loss of confidence, perhaps chaos in government. And we could find ourselves here again soon with the Tory party just cycling through its MPs as leaders. Do, do you see this settling down or are we going to have one of these every month or so until 2025? I don't think that's possible. But whoever wins is going to face two big problems. One is that there isn't really a credible unity candidate. Mr. Johnson is totally divisive. Mr. Sunak is seen by Johnson loyalists as having been the person who stabbed him in the back. And Miss Mordaunt sort of sits in the middle. But whether she really has the credibility and authority to pull the party together is not clear. That's one issue. And then the other is, of course, this terrible, terrible economic backdrop. No matter what happens, the new leader is going to have to come in and very, very quickly agree on a medium-term fiscal plan with the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, assuming he keeps his job. And that plan is going to involve either big spending cuts or more tax rises, or most probably both. So politically, it's going to be absolutely toxic. But it is also going to be necessary because the markets are watching it. And we saw in their reaction to Miss Truss's departure a kind of collective shrug because they know that they have the whip hand. It is incumbent on whoever is running the next government to come up with a plan that balances the books. So put all of that together, factional party, really, really difficult economic situation, politically toxic plan that has to come out very, very soon. And The new leader is not going to be popular, uh, and it is possible that you will see this same dynamic again. I mean, we are seeing a spiral here in the Tory party, and it's not clear that it's ended. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. For almost a decade, Israel and Lebanon have been arguing over offshore Mediterranean gas fields. But their leaders have now struck a maritime border deal that could unlock rewards for both countries. Lebanon's President Michel Aoun said he hoped the deal would be the beginning of an economic recovery that his country needs. And in Israel, Prime Minister Yair Lapid urged his parliamentary colleagues to approve the accord, saying it was good for Israel's economy and security. It's an agreement that would have required buy-in from Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shia militia and political party that sees Israel as its sworn enemy. But it's also a pact that will be welcomed by a Europe that needs alternative sources of gas to replace those from Russia. Israel and Lebanon certainly hope this deal will mean new discoveries of natural gas. That's also the hope for many foreign energy companies. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. You had firms from both Britain and France earlier this month that were scoping out opportunities in the waters off of Israel and Lebanon. You talk to Western diplomats and they say this could not come at a better time. Europe, of course, needs gas right now since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're hoping some of that will come from the Middle East. Of the 20 countries in the world that have the largest proven gas reserves, nine of those are in the region and some of them have ambitions to export more of it. Uh, I think no one more so than Qatar, which is already the world's biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas and uh, which plans to increase its production by 43 percent by 2026. So good news all around. It's never good news all around in the Middle East, unfortunately. And the issue with Eastern Mediterranean gas is that while there seems to be a lot of it in the sea, there is not a way to get that gas where it is needed and to Europe in particular. There has been talk for years about building a pipeline and the two possible routes that it could take. One of them would go north to Turkey, which already has existing pipelines into the EU, but the pipeline would have to cross Cypriot territory and that becomes very politically complicated. Turkey has occupied part of Cyprus for decades, and so a pipeline that goes from Cyprus to Turkey would not go over well with the Cypriot government. The other option is you could go across the Med to Greece and then perhaps onward to Italy. But uh, to do that, you would have to build the world's longest undersea pipeline. It would cost billions of dollars. It would take the better part of a decade to build. And it's not at all clear if that project is feasible. But you mentioned some countries are already big exporters of liquefied natural gas. Why, Why is liquefaction not the question here? It's an option for the moment, but it's a small option. When you look around the Mediterranean, you have Egypt, which does have two liquefaction plants on its Mediterranean coast. 
it is the only country in the Eastern Mediterranean that has them. Israel does not, Lebanon does not, and they're unlikely to. Israel, for a mix of uh, environmental and security reasons, and Lebanon, because frankly, the, the state is bankrupt at the moment. So that leaves Egypt, which has been importing natural gas from Israel in order to liquefy it and re-export that gas to Europe. But even running at full capacity, those plants can only supply about 2% of European demands or about 6% of what it used to import from Russia. Now, you can expand that capacity, but uh, to do that will take years. So it's not a short-term solution. As an aside, though, yes, it would take years, and yes, it would be expensive, and yes, it would come up against political difficulties and so on, but like the long run of this is they're going to continue to be big-time gas producers. Doesn't it make sense, no matter what we do right now, that the long-term plan is let's get those big, hard, expensive things underway? It does make sense. And I think the question is just deciding which of those things you're going to do. You have people in governments and in the energy world who are pushing quite strongly for the pipeline option. You have others who want to expand liquefaction capacity. And, and all of this has been discussed for years. Uh, I think certainly looking at dynamics in the market right now, you can imagine in the next year or two, someone will make a decision about that and start pouring money into it. But until now, there's been no clear policy around which of these routes to take and, and how to do it. But what about countries beyond Egypt? You said the, the, the region as a whole is rich in this stuff. It is rich in this stuff, but unfortunately, many countries around the region are struggling to get this stuff out of the ground. Uh, if you look to the West, you have Algeria, which has been the third largest gas supplier to Europe and is expecting record revenue this year. Sonatrach, which is the state-owned oil and gas giant, thinks it will earn $50 billion this year from energy exports. That's up from $35 billion last year. But that increase is because prices are higher. It's not because volume is higher. Sonatrach has been, frankly, a, a mess of a company. It's gone through seven directors in 10 years. And so production in Algeria has stagnated. You look then to the other side, you look to the east, to Iraq. It produces lots of natural gas as a byproduct of oil production. But uh, about half of that gas simply ends up being flared. It's burned off because there is no infrastructure to capture it, process it. In 2020, Iraq burned off enough gas to make up 5% of Europe's annual gas consumption. And so there are all of these obstacles to capturing the gas, but then there are further obstacles to actually getting it to consumers in Europe. As if there weren't obstacles enough, what are, what are the other stumbling blocks? The biggest one is domestic demand. If you're a gas producer in the Middle East, this is a cheap source of fuel and of energy for you. And so uh, you want to make use of it as much as you can. So you look at Egypt, for example, demand for natural gas has risen by 35% since 2015. The country has laid on lots of new gas-fired power plants. It also just has a growing population. It hit 104 million recently. It's growing by 1 million every seven months or so. All of them need electricity, and more and more of that electricity is coming from gas-fired power plants. Uh, also, the government has encouraged and incentivized drivers to switch to running on natural gas rather than on petrol. So, you know, you get into a taxi now in Cairo, and more often than not, those taxis run on natural gas. So demand is rising in these countries, which means there is less gas to export. Now, there is a recognition that uh, that might be a problem, that this gas is quite lucrative, especially now, to export. And so there are measures both to boost supply and to reduce demand. You look at Algeria, Sonatrach has signed a number of big deals with any of the Italian oil giant to boost its capacity. Uh, many of those will not come online before 2024, but there is money being spent there. 
The country is also building lots of new combined cycle gas power plants, which are much more efficient than the older single cycle ones. So uh, there has been an effort to increase what is available, and that will make a difference in the long run. But for the next year or two, the Middle East, aside from Qatar, I would say not likely to play much of a role in Europe's gas supply. And what about this notion that this uh, appears to be a, a cooperative effort, if you like, between Israel and Lebanon? Does that, does that have onward implications? In theory, it gives them both a reason to keep the peace on their border because they both stand to benefit from energy exploration in the Mediterranean. But I think one real issue is whether Lebanon gets something out of this deal or not. Uh, No one is quite sure what the geology looks like on Lebanon's side of the Mediterranean, whether there is, in fact, gas or oil under the water there. Even if there is, whether you can extract that and bring it to market in a country that is now bankrupt, that is going through a profound financial crisis, that can't keep the lights on for more than two or three hours a day because the the state electricity grid is falling apart, whether you can actually exploit whatever resources might exist. This is all an open question at the moment. And there are some Lebanese who are quite concerned that they've made this deal, that the Israelis in the short term will get something out of it. But it's not clear whether Lebanon will. And so I think whether this deal means something more significant politically going forward, a lot of that will depend on what companies like Total find in the waters off the coast of Lebanon. Thanks very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. When Yuri Kapatenko received an invitation sometime in September to conduct an International Music Day concert, he could take it as flattery of a sort. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. He was a well-known figure around the city. He had been a member of the Herson Regional Philharmonic, and he was in charge of the Gilead Chamber Ensemble their chief conductor. That ensemble was a group of 15 or so players from the Herson Philharmonic. He was pretty popular. And certainly in the music and drama theatre, when you came in in the evenings, and he would be there in his black tie, and it was always a good sign to see Kapitenko there and realise you were in for a good evening's entertainment. His own instrument was uh, not particularly suited to the orchestra. It was the accordion. He'd been a prize-winning accordion player ever since high school. He'd traveled abroad to play it, and he'd studied it at the Conservatoire in Kiev, together with conducting and composition. He loved the accordion because it was the sound of the land of Ukraine, together with the violin. However... When the invitation to the International Music Day concert came and he was asked to conduct, he gave an uncompromising no to it. And the reason was that Kherson was then a city under Russian occupation. It was occupied from March the 2nd, And there was no way that a good patriotic Ukrainian could take part in this concert as far as Kerpetenko was concerned. 
What the occupation had done was put the whole city under military rule, make rubles the currency, encourage the speaking of Russian rather than Ukrainian. The citizens had risen up in revolt and had protested in huge numbers at first, but they'd been dispersed with live rounds and many hundreds had been arrested. Those who were not arrested sometimes simply disappeared, were abducted. So many people had left, but Kapitenko had not left. He was determined to stay, and his mood on his Facebook page was extremely defiant. He found it extremely hard to stomach the Russia of the present day. He put up posts on his Facebook page that said, you know, what is Russia now? It's just a place of KGB types. It's a concentration camp. And here is Putin pointing his guns at me and trying to turn my country into Novorossiya, the new Russia. He didn't want any of this, and he was going to make sure everyone knew he didn't want it. Under the occupation, music making had gone very quiet. And that seemed right to him, that there shouldn't be too much music playing at a time of such stress and grief in the city. This gave him something of a reputation of being an awkward customer. But others saw him as a man of principle who was not prepared to compromise music and always wanted to defend the interests of his orchestra and his players. When he considered the invitation to the International Day concert. He could see it as a simple bluff, a simple lie. The concert was meant to prove that life was normal again, that everyone had settled down to a peaceful existence and there were even concerts being staged. Of course, nothing was further from the truth. But he couldn't get his point of view across because there was a new chief conductor of the Philharmonic, and there was a new artistic director there. Both had been appointed by the Russians, and both were determined that the concert should go ahead. If Kapitenko didn't want to conduct it, they would find someone else to do it. Some of the players needed threats in order to play, but there were quite a few others who were very happy to go along with the concert. And this wounded Kapitenko more than anything else, that there was this kind of collaboration going on in the city. So sometime in September, when the invitation came and when he refused it, he went back home and seemed to fall very quiet. No one knew quite what was happening to him and why he was no longer putting posts on the Facebook page. Members of the Russian Secret Service went along to see him and to try to persuade him to change his mind. They went to his flat and he gave them a pretty curt answer. And they said they would be back. And when they came back, it was with a machine gun, which they fired at full volume through the front door and killed him instantly. He was killed defending music and defending art, defending them from being compromised. Because after all, the whole purpose of art is to uplift people. And the whole purpose of war is to bring them down. And he knew decidedly which side he was on. Mm -hmm. 
Monroe on Yuri Kurpitenko, who was murdered aged 46. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jat Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra production help this week from Margaret Kadifa. We'll all see you back here on Monday. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.